The title of today's Dharma talk is Looking After Me. So, how, how do I lo look after me? Yeah? But in fact, there's a, a question that comes before that. Who is me? Habitually, we take our life to be like a theatrical production, like a sitcom, in which the leading character is called me. It doesn't matter what role this me plays. For some, me is the victim and we relish being the victim of this and that and, and being oppressed by this or that. For others, the me is the victor. And again, we, we relish being able to vanquish others. Whichever roles we play, we pick, we pick them on the belief that if we can pick the role that is okay for us, <coughs> we are going to be happy, or at least mitigate our suffering. That chance. Even if we succeed in the role we pick, it ends up doing little, if anything, to end our dissatisfaction. You know, some time ago I ran into a book, I, I, I think it's an interesting book, entitled Six Billion Others. This, the author of the book, or authors, went all over the world uh, collecting statements from ordinary people. And so this is a, a sample of things that people say. And there's a photograph of each one of them. It's, Quite vivid and uh, candid, uh, you know. And uh, so I, when I want to know what people might be thinking, I check it out there. This is a guy nor called Norbert. He lives in Madagascar, an island of Africa, I think. He says, I always have the impression that I'm not satisfied, that my life is incomplete. The result is that I always try to have more. If I have a franc, that's the currency in Madagascar, I want 10 francs. If I have 10 francs, I'd like to have 100. If I had 100, I'd want 1,000. If I had a bicycle, I'd want a motorbike. If I had a motorbike, I'd want a car. Quite candid. The Buddha must have heard many Norberts in his time saying similar things. Only that, I suppose, instead of wanting a car, 
they would have wanted a cart. To counter this misguided way of seeking satisfaction, the Buddha offered one of his central teachings, a teaching of dependent arising. It says, the teaching says, that our relentless wanting of this or that is really not about this or that. It is rather about fabricating the me, the wanter, the one who wants. We have been duped into believing that this pursuit of always more will deliver our an end to our suffering. But of course it does nothing of the sort as Norbert and the Norberts in the world know very well. All of us are Norberts here, I think. I am, for sure. In fact, it tends to, to do the opposite of what we seek. The moment the I, the me, gets what it wants, what it wanted, it becomes frightened to death that it's going to lose it. That, that it, the me, is going to die. Not, I don't mean a physical death. I mean a death result, resulting from a reversal of fortunes. Right, because the me is created by getting this. Then this uh, loses importance or goes away or gets destroyed. And then is the death of me too, the death of the I. The Buddha says, said this very clearly. I'm putting it in as simple terms as I can. And then another basic flaw of this scheme of pursuing, uh, Norbert's scheme, let's call it, is that it assuming, assumes that the end of our suffering, the solution to our problems, is to be found out there. Ignoring what goes on in our real inner life. And so, how do we go beyond this charade? This scheme. To do that, we must begin to look inside ourselves. The Buddha, again, was quite explicit about this. Listen to this passage from the scriptures. In which, as the scriptures relate, the Deva Rohitasa, Deva is like a deity, tells the Buddha that although he could run very fast, Wishing to travel to the end of the cosmos, he spent a hundred years trying to do so. And, as he says, apart from the time spent on eating, drinking, chewing and tasting, urinating and defecating and sleeping to fight off weariness. Yet, as the scriptures say, he never reached the end of the cosmos and died along the way. So that's why he's a deity now. 
reborn in heaven. Uh, by the way, in, it's difficult to translate from the scriptures, but the, the cosmos, it's clear to me and others, means the uh, limitations of ordinary life. <coughs> the, our limited world. So Rohitasa couldn't get to that end. And the Buddha responded to Rohitasa. I tell you, friend, that it isn't possible by travel to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos, of the ordinary limitations of life. But at the same time, I'll tell you, there is, there is no making an end of suffering and stress without reaching the end of the cosmos. Yet, it is within this fathom-long body, fathom is a, it's a measurement, you know, traditional English measurement, that refers to the size of the body, actually. Yes, it is just within this fathom-long body, with this perception and intellect, that I declare that there is the cosmos, the origination of the cosmos, the cessation of the cosmos, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the cosmos. So, after I, I reread this passage, the thought came to me, this is a footnote to this whole story, thought came to me, wow, you know, if Rohantasa had been here today, not 25,000 years ago or so, 2,500 years ago, um, what he would have done is uh, to Google the end of the cosmos. He would have spared himself all that walking. So, I decided to do that myself. Um, the end of the cosmos, well over 20 million answers, of course, you know. Still, I thought, let me try a few, you know. And there was nothing of any interest whatsoever, except for one item, very interesting. I ran into that very quote about Orhitasa that started my search to begin with. <laughs> and so, once again, the Buddha had the last word. Okay, back to his teachings. And back to the, the book of quotes of six billion others. Here's a, another quote that I find uh, relevant. is by a guy called Akusawa, who lives in Los Angeles. And he says, yeah, I'm very happy because I finally understood that happiness comes from the inside. I remember when I was young that I used to look all around for happiness in other people, in other places, in other things. But I finally understood that happiness resides inside us. And I would add to what Akusawa says. 
that inside us we encounter both valuable things and inner dialogue and a deep silence. Let's look at both, starting with the inner dialogue. Of course, the inner dialogue very often is affected, is colored by our pervasive egocentricity. But it can also go much deeper than that. And not just on occasion, like when we go to church on Sunday and, and we open up to another window of our mind, or we go to psychotherapist on Tuesday, say, and we explore other parts of our mind. But consistently, so that we constantly have the inner recesses of our mind available in some way. That's what meditation tends to do. Meditation has a knack to make it possible, to make room for the undercurrents of our mind to show up on the screen of our mind. Not explained in any way, but as insights that pop up. This becomes possible because in meditation we approach our inner search without any preconceived agenda. Impelled only by the wish to be true to each moment. It's then and only then that we can discover our true needs. This inner dialogue, obviously, takes true primarily in our mind. But you know, it's interesting, and I became aware of this quite recently, although I should have had a, a better sense of that before, that the rest of our body is also dialoguing. It's also engaged in that. And it's... it's well, some of us have a tendency to have to see this in concrete terms. And so let me share this thing with you, this study with you, about how one of the ways, at least, in which our body engages in inner dialogue. And that is through the immune system. You know, the immune system is a system that protects us against infections, against a disease, infectious disease. But as the cells of the immune system circulate around our body, they do many other things that are generally ignored. In fact, they 
the cells of the immune system have a knack for touching, feeling the contours of other cells, which is a way of dialoguing, of course, and feeling the contours of, of cells of the immune system itself. This touching a feeling way of mediating messages from cell to cell. There's a quite an outstanding scientist, born in Chile actually, Francisco Varela, who died a few years ago. And he started some dialogues with the Dalai Lama about science and spirituality. And I'd like to share with you some of the things that Varela said to the Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama. About, it's about how the immune system creates an identity for our body. Below the level of our mind, but still very vivid. Here's what Varela says. What is the nature of the identity of a nation? France, for instance, he, he lived in France at the time, has an identity, and it's not sitting in the office of François Mitterrand. Mm -hmm. This was said in 1990, when Mitterrand was the president of France. Obviously, if a foreign entity invades a country, the army would mount a military response. However, it would be silly to say that the military response is the whole of the French identity. What is the identity of France when there is no war? Communication creates this identity. The tissue of social life as people meet each other and talk. It's a life beat of the country. You walk in the cities and see people in cafes, writing books, raising children, cooking, most of us, most of all, talking. Something analogous happens in the immune system as we construct our bodily identity. Cells and tissues create an identity as a body because the network of B cells and T cells, that is the two types of immune cells, B cells and T cells constantly moving around, binding and unbinding to every single molecular profile in your body. They also bind and unbind constantly among themselves. Like a society, the cells build a tissue of mutual interactions, a functional network. And it is as through this and sorry, and it is through these mutual interactions that lymphocytes, that is the T and B cells, the immune cells, are inhibited or expanded in clones, just as people get demoted or promoted, families expand or contract. This affirmation of a system's identity, which is not a defensive reaction, but a positive construction, is a kind of self assertion. There are T cells that can bind to every single molecular profile in the body, just as for every aspect of French life, museums and libraries, cafes and pastries, there must be people who deal with it. A balance is created so that the molecules of my skin are in communication with the cells of my liver. 
because they are mutually infected via this circulating network of the immune system. So, anyway, this is like a, a footnote to the whole picture of interactivity within ourselves. What I was trying to emphasize is that this body of mind, this body of each one of you, is not a system under the exclusive control of the brain, but a beehive of cells talking to each other. I find this extraordinarily refreshing. So, in so many other ways, and meditation is one of those ways, we come to realize that our lives go well beyond the limits of what we can explain rationally. And this realization, to me at least, is good news. Because the lesser the control, particularly the lesser the control by the ego, the greater our openness to an infinitude of possibilities. And yes, it's true, in order to enjoy that freedom, we must pay the price of unpredictability. I don't know whether any of you have read or a book called Zorba the Greek, or seen the film Zorba the Greek. But anyway, Zorba, the central character in this uh, book and film, calls this the full catastrophe of life. But he didn't mean that expression. He doesn't mean that expression as a complaint or a lament. On the contrary, he meant that as an appreciation of the fullness that life can offer us. True, most of us, or many of us at least, that included myself for a long time, would rather have a limited and predictable life neat and laundered, rather than a full and messy one. So it's not surprising that a decade or so ago, the chemical bank started an advertising campaign built around two contrasting images. One, a messy one, referring to our lives, and you guess it, another one very neat, referring to our bank account. I've reproduced that, and here's um, the poster of the chemical bank. I don't know where you can see it. 
There's a messed up tape, I suppose, an audio tape at that time, and the, representing our life. And down below is neat CD representing our bank account. Of course, those of us who know better about banks and finances know the real mess is here. Only are they control. This is a, a, a very healthy mess. It, it helps us being open, being available. This is a, a trap when it gets messy. But anyway. But anyway, the, the PR agents of the bank, I'm sure, correctly assure their clients that most of the public would go for the CD. I, and probably a number of you, would prefer the messy tape. It's wide open. It allows for different parts of ourselves to become manifest. Indeed, it's an essential step towards authenticity to acknowledge that we are many. Taking that hand is fond of of reminding us of that among others not of course in order to find an alternative self you know I'm not this I'm not another self no 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 but not to displace a current impersonator but to drop the impersonating frenzy altogether and allow the richness of ourselves to become manifest, supported by a, un- a sense of unconditional friendship to all that we are. Meditation practice opens the way to that authenticity. In it invites us to be present with all that comes our way without screening anything out, without preconceived judgment, even without giving priority to preferences. The specific meditation instructions that I've received from others and I often offer in retreats is to pay full attention for instance, to sounds as they arise, linger for a while, and then pass away. No holding on, not pushing anything away, no judgment. The sound of a bird singing, we pay attention to. The sound of a lawnmower mowing the grass, we pay attention to. No judgment. And, and this is very important too, the practice invites us to be fully aware not only of the sounds, in the case of sounds, but of the silence into which the sounds are received. The space, the space which also flourishes by itself when all sounds fade away. And this, of course, is not limited to sounds. 
in more general terms, the practice invites us to be present not only with experience, but also to be present with the, em- the space of emptiness that lies behind, underneath all experience, the space where all experience is received. Emptiness is indeed a unique gift of the practice. Having learned not to cling to the infinitude of things that come our way, having learned to just let them come and go, we are ready to appreciate the, also the open space that lies behind them, a space in which we can receive life unfiltered in all its dimensions. In this space, we're invited not to construct anything, but to simply let experience unfold and fade away by itself. Should the ego, the me, stick its nose into this empty space, it'll find nothing to cling to. Nowhere to land, no foundations for its construction. And so, it'll eventually give up and go away, and we will remain in peace. Of course, we can only come to this space after acknowledging and processing the full catastrophe of our lives represented in the iconic messy tape in the chemical bank and, you know, really dealing with that today, knowing it, accepting it, being familiar. If we push it away, we ignore it. We are in this endless battle against the difficulties. But if we let the difficulties percolators, we can process them. And we make peace with them. And then, having done that, not having looked for this alternative, which is a prison in itself, then we are able to go beyond them. Not in denial, but shifting our focus to the vast space of emptiness that lies behind. I struggled on how to represent this in any way, but then it became obvious. And here it is, you know. Here it is. You probably guessed it. Can't get it. Oops. No, leave it there, leave it there, leave it there. You see? Here's a messy tape. We've we got we're done with it. The messy tape is right there in a the little corner of this big white cardboard. And now Recognizing 
that there was a message, he can move to the open space, to the emptiness of our life, of course. It's, it's a simple way of representing something that at times is a very, very difficult struggle, of course. But that's the trajectory. It invites us to look after ourselves by going beyond the personal narrative, which we cannot do until we've made peace with that personal narrative, of course. Making peace with the personal narrative, this is the way it is. I goofed, I made mistakes, whatever, whatever that narrative includes. And then going beyond. going beyond all narratives to a space that is really and truly undescribable. By going to a space that's not out there, but it's a result of a shift that occurs inside ourselves. A shift that takes us to a place, to a place where we no longer crave for this or that but are fully satisfied with by just being here and now in the space that's left when all narratives become irrelevant. Let's sit for a few moments in silence, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.